Welcome to Ask the Dean. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm the co-founder of MAPT. I'm joined every week by Rachel Grubbs, the other co-founder of MAPT, who has 20 years' experience in the pre-med and test prep world, and by Dr. Scott Wright, former executive director of TMDSAS and former director of admissions at UT Southwestern Medical School. Ask the Dean is a weekly Q&A we do live exclusively for our MAPT members, and this podcast is a recording of that session so that everyone can benefit from that knowledge. Let the knowledge flow. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another live Q&A session with the MSHQ advising team and part of our MAP team. We will be renaming this again, um, but more appropriately to the pre-med office hours session where we answer your questions live. If you are referring to the asked map, the previous title, it would be episode 132, and we're happy to have you here. My name is Courtney Lewis. Courtney Lewis. I am a prior director of admissions at a medical school, and I joined this team in July after I matriculated my final class there. And I am joined by Verenia Grana, who was a former assistant dean, who is a former assistant dean of pre-health and STEM advising. Hello, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, ready to talk to, or at least answer questions for students. Um, yeah, let's get going. How is the weather in New York since I will be in your neck of the oh, woods tomorrow? <laughs> that's true. So it's been a little gloomy today. I'm not sure the rest of the week. It's a little overcast today and it's chilly, okay. like really cold. <laughs> okay. um, but yeah, yeah. So bring extra warmth, pack yeah. whatever extra sweaters you have. Right. Hopefully your flight is okay too. I heard this morning there's been some craziness with the flights and stuff. So <laughs> okay, just be aware. Luckily, yeah, yeah, luckily I'm on a nonstop, but it but, would it would yeah. be easy to run into stuff. So yeah. okay, thanks for the tips. I'll pack my Canada goose just so I yeah. don't. Do that. <laughs> and we also have Rachel, who is our Mapped co-founder and has many many years of helping pre-med students on the MCAT and standardized test and the pre-med process for advising and also an application academy instructor with the rest of us. So welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be here. I love Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern. It's one of my favorite parts of the week. Uh, and yeah, uh, the sun just came out for a second. I saw a little weird spot on me and I was like, what's that? And it was the sun <laughs> coming through the window. I haven't seen that in a while. Um, Same. <laughs> so apparently it's partly cloudy here in Ohio today. Nice. Or partly sunny, depending on your optimism level. <laughs> nice. Okay, for for anybody new joining us, now is your chance to post any questions that you have that you'd like us to try to tackle during this live session. Pretty much anything's on the table for the pre-med process or admissions process. Even if you are a freshman in your undergrad and looking to kind of set a trajectory, we can cover any and all topics throughout your pre-med years. So we'll kind of pull up questions as they come in on all of the platforms and try to tackle those. Rachel, do you wanna talk about Application Academy at all or any of the things that we started this past yeah, week? Is anybody joining us? So yeah, as questions or comments are coming in, um, for anyone who is applying to med school in 2023, so you're hoping to start med school in 2024, uh, now is the time to be thinking about your application. 
And that may seem like, whoa, it seems awfully early, but you will find out that application work goes best if it is slow and steady. So um, Application Academy, as Courtney mentioned, is one of the ways that we can help you. We do have a group advising program. It's definitely still a significant investment, but um, it's, it's $5.99 normally, but it's actually still $100 off through Friday. So if you're watching this live, today's January 11th, as long as you enroll through Friday the 13th, uh, you can actually get it for $4.99. Uh, 10 sessions a week with the five Application Academy advisors. So Dr. Gray, me, Courtney Lewis, Renee Granham, uh, James Scott Wright. So a big, a, a broad and deep team of expertise. Um, so there are um, textbooks that you can read. There are modules, videos that you can watch to kind of learn the application basics. And then 10 sessions a week, small group office hours. So um, there are, this is an online course. There are, all 700, are several hundred people in it, but what we're seeing is class size in the neighborhood of 20 to 30. Um, so people can come to any session at any time to pop in, ask questions. We'll have certain sessions work um, focused on certain topics. We'll have some sessions that are just open Q&A for anything. Um, and I highly recommend checking it out. If you want to kind of get a taste of what it's like, we had um, a five-week series called Application Jumpstart that we offered through December and early January. And that's like a great preview of Application Academy. You can watch that on the Medical School HQ YouTube channel. There's a playlist there that's called Application Jumpstart. Uh, but Academy always warms my heart every year because we're only, you know, today's Wednesday. So we're like, five sessions into this 500 session course and already the community is forming. People are kind, people are collaborative. They really embrace this idea we have of collaboration, not competition. We've got, um, you know, non-trads who are parents. We've got young students who are supporting parents or grandparents. We've got people from humanities, from engineering, from bio, you know, we've got English language learners, we've got international students. There's just so many different kinds of pre-meds all coming together to work as a community, but then also you notice all these little subgroups forming of people supporting each other. So people who have the same MCAT test date or people who have kids about the same age. So it's a great way to keep that application work that you have to do sort of as a slow and steady couple hours a week thing so you don't get overwhelmed come May. Um, and it's a great way to feel a little less alone. So I hope you guys will check it out. Yeah, I was going to say one of my favorite aspects of it is the you're not an island anymore, right, where you're isolated and you're mm -hmm. drafting up a personal statement. You have no context of how anybody else puts forward a personal statement. Maybe you saw one, you came across one on Reddit or something like that, and your journey is very different. You're not quite sure how to do that. Now you get the context of the group setting where we have people submitting portions of their personal statement real drafts, real-time review, peer review, along with the advisors, and just getting that feedback and being able to pop into any topic that we're covering kind of that week or in that session and giving people the latitude to do that. I think it's going to be a positive change from just kind of the linear uh, cohort that we had this past year, right, where if you were doing early admission or a different process or you weren't quite ready to work on your personal statement, but that's when we were covering it, we have a lot more latitude this year. So very excited that it's finally started. It started on Monday. If anybody wants to catch up, there are recordings, so you can go in and watch it and 
feel like you can catch up. And we still have some orientation and am I ready kind of open Q and A's as well for the next week or two, right? And yep. so if you have questions on that, you'll be able to, to pop in and not feel like you're behind in any way and have an orientation into all of the resources that you have available. So if you wanna jump on board early and kind of wrap your head around everything that's coming this spring to prep you for starting the application cycle and then help with secondaries and uh, mock interviews and navigating the admissions process and things, that's what we're here for. So we're excited to do that. But anyways, if you have questions, kind of coming back to this live portion, we're here to answer anything and everything that comes in. So I'm not sure if we have any questions. Yeah, oh, yeah we do. Okay. Ready. Mm -hmm. All right. JB, hi. About two months ago from my MCAT, and aside from Blueprint and AAMC, I have five extra third-party exams. Would y'all recommend taking two FL? Uh, per week so that I can see as many MCAT questions as possible? Or is that overkill? Rachel, you want to take this one? Yeah, JB, I, I definitely commend your resourcefulness. I'm glad you have so many different sources. I, I do think it's particularly important to save a lot of the WMCs for those weeks leading up right to the exam. So it's mm -hmm. good that you've got third-party sources. Two full times a week might be right. It depends because I don't think it... You said, should I take two, two full lengths a week so I can see as many MCAT questions as possible? I don't agree with that reasoning. And the reason I don't is that it's not that there's some finite number of possible questions and eventually you can cover them all. The whole point of the MCAT is they wanna see how you critically think and apply. So no matter how much you study, there's still a chance that you're gonna get some passages, some science passages, that talk about things that you've never seen or never heard before. And that is intentional on the MCAT test takers part because they want to see your ability to apply some things that you know to a bunch of things you don't know, to read passages, to read tables and charts and make decisions. So I wouldn't ever go about any MCAT studying with the idea that there's a finite list of everything that could be covered and I can get to it all. Um, we sometimes say this about interview prep, but it's also true about MCAT prep. The goal is not to be ready for everything. That's impossible. The goal is to be ready for anything. So yes, I want you to keep taking practice tests and working on your skills, but I would only be okay with you taking two full lengths a week if you have enough time in your life to seriously review those exams in full. And I literally mean it might take you one to two times as long to review the exam as you take it. So if you take a full length on Monday, hey, that's a six and a half to eight hour endeavor. You're done, you did, you did your work for the day. But then the next time you come back and study, you might spend another eight, even 16 hours reviewing that exam, not just the ones you got wrong, also the ones you got right, adding to your lessons learned journal, looking things up, creating more Anki flashcards or you know, doing drilling or chapter review on those particular contents or particular strategies that you're struggling with. And that's where the real improvement comes in from test review, test analysis. Um, so two a week might work if you have a very flexible schedule this winter and spring, but I would rather see fewer practice exams and deeper analysis than just more tests. So, um, yeah, it's, it sounds a little ambitious to me, but it might work because I don't know what your schedule's like. I would just say 
while quantity of tests matter, because some of this is about just pushing yourself through that endurance of the big long day so that when you get up on official day, it just feels like one more big MCAT test day, uh, I do want to make sure you're spacing them enough out to do to do really great review. Yeah. And good luck. Yeah. Okay, Christian, are having an online bachelor's plus prereqs face-to-face -face okay for application? This is an interesting question. Um, my gut reaction initially, and Bernie, weigh in if, sure. if you have different thoughts on this, but um, as long as it's provided by an accredited institution, I think that's the, the most important thing, right? Completion mm -hmm. at an accredited institution where you took your classes. So check the accreditation status of the school or institution that you attended to obtain that bachelor's. And then, you know, prereqs face-to-face is always the ideal scenario. I would say they, they, especially for science components with labs, they want people to be in person. So is that, yeah. are we aligned all of us on? Yeah. On that Definitely. Being. Yeah, you want to make sure you check on the accreditation, um, particularly yeah. if it's um, some some for-profit online programs are a little mm -hmm. trickier. Um, so I'm not sure what, um, Christian, what your situation is, but just check on that. And you can check on that um, by going through their website. Usually the admissions page will have that type of information where, you know, where they are where they are accredited and by whom what body accredited them um but the prereqs as as courtney was just saying that's totally fine face-to-face -face is the ideal situation so yeah yeah it can also be on the about us page mm -hmm. um, on their website and you'll want to see that they're accredited by a higher education uh, board or accrediting body or kind of their state education board or regionally accredited, things like that. Those are kind of the keyword indicators that you're looking for. Yes. Alrighty, next question. Okay, Melissa, do you think medical schools care about taking prereqs at a community college? Yeah. Uh, honest answer, <laughs> it depends. I think some faculty, um, you know, could have a preference on taking them at a four-year institution. Uh, I know that there are some times where, where pre-meds will have a bulk of their material taken at the four-year institution and then summer courses taken, maybe they travel back home and they take some of their prereqs at a community college while at home during the summer. And so they're kind of tucked in that way. That's not going to rule you out, I would say. Um, but I think, you know, there's still maybe a slight preference um, to having them at a four-year institution. Again, I'll take it if anybody else has anything yeah. else to add to that. Sure. The only thing where it might be a little bit more of an issue is if you, let's say, attempted to take a or took a course, a prereq at a four-year university and didn't do well in that course, mm -hmm. um, and then you go and take it again at a community college, it may appear as though you're trying to take it at the community college because it might be considered less rigorous. Mm -hmm. um, so just be careful or be aware that that's, that might be the perception, that if you struggled in your prereqs while in your undergrad, you know, you went and took them at a community college because maybe you might you know, you do, and, and you did better there or potentially did better there because they 
might be viewed as being less rigorous. That's not always the case. And everyone's uh, situation is different, but just mm -hmm. keep that in mind. Yeah, another thing to keep in mind as, as you were mentioning that is to make sure that those credits will transfer over to your main institution and count um, towards your degree path if that's something that is required mm -hmm. under your major at your four-year institution. Just do some research ahead of time, be thoughtful about where you're planning to take them when and kind of the, the nuances of, of registrar information and tracking that just to make sure that um, it's going to be the best option for you and it's going to achieve the goal that you set out to do by taking it there. All righty. Zuchi, I have applied to both DO and MD schools as non-trad, but heard back from the non, from non, none, oh, none, maybe none, yeah. Of the DO schools back in 2018, waitlisted at one of the schools. How should I approach in asking schools how to improve my application? Super simple. Contact their admissions office and set up an advising appointment. Um, that. I would say would be the same for MD and DO schools. Admissions offices are able to pull up your record and give you some advice and maybe areas to strengthen. Keep in mind though, this is a little bit dated. So 2018 was a little while ago. You should have, you know, if you're looking at applying again in the future, there's a fair chunk of time in between when you applied and didn't hear and now to have you know, increased potentially in coursework, in clinical and med experience and, and these other things. So you might already be there, but um, that would be the quickest and easiest way to get feedback directly from the schools on any areas that they can point to. Yeah. I guess the other thing I would ask, remind about that, oh, sorry, I know we just pulled up a new no, question, is um, not every school is going to be able to give advising feedback. Um, I, I always think it's okay to politely ask, um, mm -hmm. but you know, different schools have different levels of bandwidth. Um, so if you're looking for additional help, that's sort of more evergreen that might apply to many schools, not just a specific school. A great resource is Application Renovation, which is free on YouTube. You can go to applicationrenovation.com or just search up, thank you, great banner. <laughs> uh, or you can just search Application Renovation in YouTube. Um, we also have the Am I Ready series. They're essentially the same thing. Am I ready is, here's my stuff. Am I ready to apply? What are my strengths and weaknesses, right? Um, things to work on. And then uh, application renovation is, I already applied, I didn't get in. What are my strengths and weaknesses? So it's essentially the same question, just on either side of the application, you know, before and after. And I think both of those, they're deep dives into other students. So you might say, but I don't know, does that apply to me? Uh, with a lot of respect and love, I say many pre-meds start questions to me saying, my thing's a little different. And in my head, I'm listening to them going, yeah, I'm happy to help you. And also, this is just like 40 other MCAT uh, pre-med students I've talked to this week, right? So you guys have a lot in common, and you can learn a lot from watching mm -hmm. each other's progress. So I would definitely recommend those videos. Um, still feel free to reach out to the schools. But just remember, you might get some no's, and there are still ways you can help yourself. You don't have to go through them to do that kind of analysis. Well, and another plug, right? If you want us to dig in 
to your application or your prior application and stuff, you can schedule an appointment with one of us advisors. You know, if you have that information that yeah. would provide us with some context and, and can kind of talk it out and what you've done since then and provide us with some background and things, you know, all of us have knowledge and experience and we talk to and work with a lot of schools. And, you know, even just in our prior careers, we obtained a lot on how to navigate that. And so we can kind of speak if we have a one-on-one -on -one advising lesson generalities of what could potentially work to maybe identifying certain things that we know may have been a flagged area mm -hmm. uh, by the med school. So just a plug there, I mean, Rachel, you know, we're, we're blessed that both of our co-founders allow us to share a lot of free resources and, and give you as much as we can. But sometimes we need one-on-one -on -one dedicated yeah. time to kind of go over that um, yeah. to tailor the feedback. So if that's an option that you're interested in, there's also that if you want to do it, if, if you can't um, or would rather not go to just individual advising or you can't set something up, we can certainly do that too. Okay. Yep. Okay. Moving on from that, from that plug there, it feels weird to say, but um, we can definitely do that. We'd be happy to. Yeah. All right, Monica, do behavioral technician jobs or psychometricians count as clinical if under a psychologist, not an MD? Hmm. Do we want to give this to Verenia like we always do? <laughs> Is it clinical? Is it clinical? Is it clinical? Um, I'm not sure what a psychometrician does. This is a new one on me, but if I'm thinking on behavior tech and what they do, if it's similar. The idea of clinical experience um, is that you are directly um, involved in the care of another person. Um, and I shouldn't, we call it clinical, but really it's not the setting that matters is what you're doing. Are you, mm -hmm. so you're taking care of a person. Mm -hmm. So it's really patient care experience. So if you're taking care of another human being in some way that that directly impacts their health, their well-being, then yeah, it's considered patient care clinical experience. So that you'd have to think about what you do. I don't know what your role is. Um, specifically, it doesn't matter if you're under an MD or um, a psychologist. That part of it doesn't matter. It's more so what you're doing with that other individual. Yeah. Yeah, psychometrician. And again, this is why we often say you can't tell from job titles. Mm -hmm. You can only tell from like, it. it cl clinical is always subjective and it's always what you do. And once recently to a parent, I said job description and the parent was like, but Rachel, the job description my child was given and what they're actually doing at the job ended up not being the same. And I was like, wow, mm -hmm. that's such an important like linguistic thing. Cause I didn't actually mean what's on indeed.com. I meant, what are you doing every day? Cause that often happens. Lots of jobs yep. evolve from their original plan. That's, that's just like America, mm -hmm. right? It's the way we do work. Um, we're not, we're not very rigid. Um, so, so psychometrician sounds like I'm assessing tests. And mm -hmm. if you're assessing tests, not people, I'd be surprised if that were clinical. But again, you need to ask yourself, what do I do every day? Who do I interact with? And then like, like Verinia said, are you interacting with them in a way that is directly related to their health? Yeah. Okay. Son, do medical schools look negatively at students who take 12 credit hours both semesters of their senior year if they took, if, they up till then took 15 hours a semester 
or is this drop not seen as significant? I think most schools still consider that full-time enrollment, right? It's, mm -hmm. um, yeah. I don't think, as long as you're still able to perform well and that's what you need to complete your degree, I don't see why this would be identified as, um, as a pain point for anybody. Yeah, um, I don't think so. This feels yeah. like micro macro. Yeah. Either Hassan's been given a hard time about this tiny detail by someone in his life who means well but doesn't know better. Which I mean I'm projecting, right? <laughs> or there's been weird peer competition about what you're only taking 12 hours, I'm taking 20. Like good for mm -hmm. you. When are you gonna sleep? Um <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, and if by then, usually by senior year, you're done with all your requirements, so all you have left are, you know, 12 credits here and there or whatever, 24 credits for the year, then then it's fine. I wouldn't overthink it. Yep. And, you know, good job if you're able to perform well taking 15 yep. credit hours up to this point. That's wonderful. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, this is not going to be something that they're going to hyper-focus on um, and look at under a microscope. Just perform well, right? Yeah. This is material that's foundational, so you need to learn it. So make sure you're doing well in that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Zoe, how would medical school view gaps before and during pre-med years for traveling? I graduated school three years ago, but only worked for one year. Hmm. It's hard to answer that question without the context of the rest of the information that you have. But again, this is one of the things where every file is individual. So that's why it's a little bit hard because it's not a one size fits all. We're looking at the totality of the information that you provide us to kind of build a portrait of you as a student, as a person, uh, you know, in your preparation and things like that to identify, you know, indicators for success that we might be able to find or use. So I've never heard another director or dean mention that this was an issue for them. Um, I know that sometimes traveling can provide you with a rich um, kind of life experience or understanding of people from different backgrounds, different traditions, different areas of the world and things. So at face value, from my prior experience, this doesn't, again, seem like a huge pain point that they're going to hyper-focus on. Maybe if your coursework is now getting kind of dated and you've been traveling around, you don't have a lot of recent med experience and um, your attention just seems to be kind of elsewhere, they may wonder, again, they're looking for key indicators of, of success um, or preparedness. And so they may have questions now because of the length of time in between and what you were involved in. But it's at face value, it's not something that they'll automatically rule out for. It's just in the context of everything. So anybody else want to weigh in? No, I think you said it right. Yeah. Okay. Spot on. <laughs> Alexandra, will medical schools look at me negatively if I only have unplayed clinical experience? No. Big fat no. <laughs> no, not at all. You know, get clinical experience and direct patient care where and when you can to 
meet your needs or from what's available, this is certainly not something that anybody would hold against you. No. Yep. Yeah. Teresa, if you have a lot of college credits before starting college due to dual credits and AP scores without using any science credits, is it okay if you only take 12 to 14 hours each semester? I've heard conflicting info on whether schools frown upon taking lighter course loads each semester. The fewer hours still won't be super easy as a student um, in the neuroscience honors major, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I'm there seems to be kind of a common, two common threads that are running through our questions today, which is a bit curious. Um, I'm not sure quite who's spreading the information <laughs> about, you know, you do wanna take full-time enrollment when you can. Um, again, medical school is gonna be 32, 36 full-time credit hours at a graduate level to cover the material while also balancing, you know, prepping for boards, your own mental, physical, spiritual well-being, research, clubs and organizations, it's very much like the pre-med journey, just with way more credit hours and clinical skills tucked in and things like that. So kind of leading up to that, sometimes it's nice, again, when we're looking at indicators for preparedness, and ability to handle that type of course load with other things on top of that. Sometimes it's helpful to have that point of reference, but if you're enrolled full time, I think that that essentially covers your base, but you know, I've also admitted and I, you know, there's been plenty of discussions where we're talking about non-trads who have already completed their bachelor's mm -hmm. and they take prereqs one or two at a time over five semesters and they get seats as well. And because it's the wealth of information that we have to kind of pair together. So do what works for you. But I mean, has any, have either of you heard of any school, you know, we're, we have discussions with advisors, directors and things on a fairly frequent basis. And I haven't heard anybody come right out and say like, oh, if they're not taking 15 credits, I, I don't even want to look at their file. No, I've yeah. never heard that. Um, yeah, I, I really think this is going back to, it's like, it's sort of, I think maybe the same thing that happens with uh, pre-meds and research. Mm -hmm. Some people get the idea it matters, they tell each other it matters, and then there's this natural competition that occurs. Um, yeah, it's uh, good, good news, Teresa. We mean it with a lot of respect and love, but you're overthinking it and it's fine. Um, <laughs> the one thing I will say about your comment is you mentioned lots of dual credit and AP scores. Mm -hmm. You may want to, even if you're pretty early in your career, start looking at some of the med schools you think you would likely apply to. And I know that's tough if it's early on, but you know, ones in your state, any that you've been dreaming about for a long time, look at their admissions requirements pages. Um, you can either Google them or if you have a free mapped account, we have links to their admissions requirement pages. Like we have like a mini med school database. Um, and so we, we can take you straight to the right page for each med school. Um, if you check that out, you just want to make sure that they're going to accept your AP credits because sometimes mm -hmm. if the school does, the undergraduate school accepts it, the med school may not. And it's really unfortunate because I feel like so many high school students are told AP, 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 AP. And then when you're pre-med, it turns out that a lot of med schools, 
won't actually accept AP. They want to either see that same course at the college level or a more advanced course to prove that you can handle college level rigor. Um, and in their defense, I mean, I, I don't know, I think it's kind of unfair the way the system's set up, but although high school classes may cover college material, they still go at high school paces. Mm -hmm. Right. And what they really want to see is if you can handle the speed. Right. Like if you took biochemistry in high school, you probably had 36 weeks to do it. If you do it in college, you have 15. When you get to med school, you have two. So there. So that's just the thing you need to double check is are there any AP credits you have that you're still going to need to take an equivalent course for before you apply? Yeah. And if if you did take them, say, you know, there's a pathway with a community college where you end up graduating with an associates and things like that. But they are actual college credits. Just make sure for AP courses or, or ones like what I mentioned, that they are on your transcript, on your official transcript from that institution. They are broken down class by class with the credit hour and the grade associated instead of lumped all together where it gets transferred over. And I'm not you know, directors aren't able to kind of parse through and see, oh, okay, three of these credits that are in this lump sum are for English. And so those qualify. So if you need to talk to the registrar or um, anything like that, I would just take a look and see how it's laid out ahead of the game <laughs> and if any changes can be made. But as Rachel said, sometimes there is a benefit, even if you've taken the class kind of early on to still take the standard, you know, for example, bio one and bio two, even though you could skip bio one, it's foundational. So if you feel like there's more that you could get out of it before moving on to the next course, because they subsequently build on each other, then do that. You know, it, it's adding in a course. And I know that there's money and time associated for that. But the more prepared you are prior to starting med school, yeah, the better you'll do kind of throughout. And so it's worth it to tuck in maybe a couple additional courses ahead of that to have a stronger foundation because once you start, there's no stopping. Um, so it's just think of, think of it. Sorry, no <laughs> think problem. of it as think of it as MCAT study, right? You're you're better prepared because you have that foundation from your AP courses. Um, now you're taking the class again. Now you fully understand it because you have that exposure to it. Um, I encountered yeah. this a lot with students I worked with where they took AP courses, they took the bio course at the grad, at the undergrad level and still found that some of the stuff was new or they didn't really understand it, but having that exposure helped them do better and it oh, built yeah. a stronger foundation. Yeah, I still think it's great to take APs. Yeah, just mm -hmm. makes it a little easier to get that A and retain it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and I mean, we're pre-meds are high achievers, right? And so sometimes they kind of surpass just high school level courses and they, you know, they're well into some of their credit hours. So we certainly don't want to um, cast a negative light on that. That's wonderful. It's great. And hopefully that provides you with a good base to then take on your college courses and perform well and feel like you're, you're ready for those. But, but as we said, if if you want to start with the traditional route, kind of going through them, even if you've started to cover the material, you can certainly do that too. And it it would be 
kind of the most universally accepted way to do that, where you're not going to run into some of the issues that Rachel mentioned. Um, but if you do your research and it looks like you're good to go, then do what works for you. Set it up how you want. Okay, Shaw. Back in freshman year, I got a few violations for COVID mask policies in my dorm. Not a huge violation, but still on my record. But because it's COVID and health related, will this affect my med school admissions? Uh, yeah, actually it would. <laughs> um, I say that right off the gun, just because any institutional violations have to be reported and you know, I've seen anything and everything, really. <laughs> um, that doesn't mean it's going to be an automatic no. But, you know, when we're parsing hairs, it could be a point that they're kind of looking at um, and, and wondering if they're going to have professionalism problems, especially if you're saying there's a few violations, so it's a repeated behavior. But, you know, all is not lost. We're not going to judge you really just on, on this one thing. But I would say what's going to be incredibly important, and it sounds like maybe you still need to kind of work on, is taking ownership of your actions. Um, saying it's not a huge violation and it's still on my record, but, you know, should they care about it is not really the route you want to go, right? you needed repeated reminding to follow a policy. Um, so take ownership, learn something from that, right? How are you going to show them you are not gonna be a professionalism problem on their campus and that you've grown and matured since that point and you know, have become more self-aware and, and um, you take responsibility for your actions. So that would be kind of what I pose. Anybody else want to weigh in? Anything yeah. else on this one? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, maybe just expand a little. Yeah, I mean, Shai, we don't want to come down too hard on you because we know you have very limited space in YouTube comments, right? If you write more than like 200 characters, it cuts you off. Um, but, but yeah, the way this is worded makes it seem like you're more worried about the fact that you got caught than what you did. And, um, Again, you're going to have to report it. You're going to have to write an essay so you have time to think about it and reflect and write. So, like, this doesn't, what you said in this quick comment doesn't have to be your final version. But if you took other people's health into your hands and did so with negligence, that's not a good look. I'd like to see a lot of contrition out of a future physician. Um, you know, I myself do not have two full lungs. I could not be around people who didn't wear masks for a long, long time. Um, and because I couldn't trust the public to do that, I just had to shelter at home for years. And I am extremely privileged in that I could afford to do that. And a lot of people can't. So um, not trying to pick a fight with you, but yeah, I, I wanna make sure that you're not just thinking about, does it affect my record? But why did I do that? What did I learn? What would I do differently? Yeah, it's, it's, a, good, it's a good thing to kind of rule of thumb going forward not just you don't want to get caught doing things, so you have to report them, but just remember that you're applying for a professional program where you're going to be looked to as a leader. You're going to be giving a tremendous amount of responsibility. And so kind of going forward, maybe, maybe adjust some of the mindset on 
um, you know, what things can I still do and get away with and not have to report to, I need to make some changes because I, you know, I don't want this to ever be an issue again, or, you know, I don't want there to be any question about that. So mm-hmm. all is not lost, though, but for anybody who has things that, that they're going to have to report, be transparent, be honest, but take ownership and, and grow from there. That's what's most important, right? Everybody has a different life situation. They're coming into undergrad from different things. So move forward positively. Okay. Mon, does putting a dual degree program on the AMCAS, MD plus MBA or MPH affect your admission chances? Will selecting MD, MBA hurt your chances if you have business degree and similar business ECs? Anybody have any thoughts on this? I mean, I don't see why it would hurt yeah, your chances. That's kind of what I was leaning. Yeah, it, this makes me think that maybe Amon doesn't understand how mm-hmm. dual degree program applications work. Yeah, you're not just checking a box, right? You're applying to their dual degree programs if they have them. What you need to research Amon is if they actually have dual degree programs or if you're just applying to two different programs. Mm-hmm. For, for MD-PhD in particular, but sometimes MD-MBA or MD-MPH, there are actual programs that are here's a dual degree and you're applying to the specific program. In many cases, you're just applying twice and you're sort of disclosing, hey, MD people, I'm applying to your MD and your MBA. Hey, MBA people, I'm applying to both. But so I I don't know about affect your chances, right? I mean, there are fewer programs like that, but you still have to get, in most cases, you still have to get two separate acceptances, one from each department. Um, So you will need to have whatever extracurriculars and admissions requirements are required by each program. Right. And, and we're not MBA admissions experts here. You know, I've done some work in it in the past, but it's been many years and these things change quickly. So I, I never want to claim expertise on something I'm rusty on. Um, so you you need to look into, I mean, I guess one decide MBA or MPH because those are pretty different and then look into what are the requirements for those. Um, what I would also remind you is you don't have to do dual degree. You can always get an MD and then go get an MBA or MPH later. Lots of people do that. Hadley, hello. What are good things to focus on as a reapplicant from one application cycle to the next? This is a really tough one to answer without any context. We would have to look at your record. Um, I guess in providing you with areas you could check, um, I guess one, be really honest with yourself if you put yourself in the place of an admissions committee member, can you identify any areas that could stand to be strengthened? Um, You know, are you trying to make up for a low GPA? You don't want to take classes, so you're just trying to get thousands of hours of clinical thinking that they're going to offset, things like that, where, you know, maybe there is an identifiable thing that you know needs to be addressed. Maybe you were perfectly qualified and there's just too few seats, right? Um, It's a good question to ask. 
I think being self-reflective is, is kind of the first step, but to answer it fully and in a tailored manner, I would say we would need more information on your specific record, but in generalities, self-reflection, um, are there identifiable risk factors if, if you were an emissions selection person? Brinia, Rachel, you want to add anything in? Sure. And actually, Hadley added an, a follow-up with specific okay. areas, leadership, volunteer, clinical, all of them. Whatever's mm -hmm. on your application that potentially um, you can take another look at and potentially grow. So reflection and growth, right? Mm -hmm. Look back, reflect on it, and see where are areas that you can grow. Um, and maybe like Courtney said, maybe you checked off all those boxes, but there just weren't enough seats. You still want to continue on this path, right? So you still want to show that you didn't give up. You kept going, you kept trying to get, you know, additional experiences or additional hours or whatever that may be. So it's hard to, to give you more feedback than that without knowing all the details. Um, but generally it's about reflection and growth. Look back, you know, I wish there was this diagram of like the perfect pre-med student that you could say, yep, this is, do I meet all these criteria? But there isn't, right? Because every medical school is looking at everyone individually and holistically. So what are the things that you bring that I, that you can look back on and say, okay, maybe I can continue to show potential and by continuing these experiences, or maybe it's my grades, or maybe it was my MCAT score, maybe it was my writing. Maybe I didn't, you know, show why I want to do this and I didn't describe my activities in a, in a compelling way. So look back and keep growing. That's the whole idea. Keep growing during the cycle, whatever that looks like for you. Yeah. And one thing I, I like to kind of mention is I know it can be really frustrating to not get concrete direct answers that are universally accepted and say, Here's exactly what you need to do. But remember, that's a good thing, right? If, mm -hmm. if they were so granular and so concrete, that would rule out really qualified individuals that weren't blessed to be set up on that path right from the get-go. So you want there to be these gray areas so that the schools can look at you as an individual on your path with the information you provided um, to kind of demonstrate how you prepared to enter medical school. So as frustrating as it can be, it is a good thing that they leave it this open-ended and that, you know, there's areas where we can identify, you know, again, this is your journey of preparedness to then take the next step. It's, it's all a marathon, right? This shouldn't be just, I made it into med school okay, well, <laughs> once you get there, you're building upon everything that you've just done. You're taking that wealth of experience, life, academic and everything, bringing it with you, building mm -hmm. upon it and essentially doing the same types of things and getting more and more responsibilities as you go. But there's no just, I trudge on through this and, and do these checkmark things until I make it to this point and then I can breathe and I'll, I'll be on this path and then forward. It's, it's all uh, related, you know? And so maybe you didn't get in this year. What would be helpful to have on your record 
to prepare yourself and, and, you know, utilize this time effectively to be able to take all of that, get in this next year and be able to have, you know, just be even that much more prepared or have that much more context of life or different patient base or, you know, maybe more material or sitting for another standardized test that will help you then when you take the board. So all of it's integrated, all of it's related and, you know, timing comes into play. Strategy does come into play. Yes. But nothing that you do um, to kind of better your preparedness is going to be a negative in the long run. So spend the time doing things that will, will help you once you do get admitted. That's a great point. Yeah. That's a great point. All right. We can answer a couple of more here if we have any. Let's see. All right. David, our friend David. David. I'm a non-trad and work full-time as a CNA. I barely have time for non-clinical and clinical volunteer a few hours a month. Is this an issue? If so, should I reduce my work hours to do so? Who wants to tackle this one? Oh, I can take it. So, David, if you're working full-time as a CNA, I would not worry about clinical volunteer because clinical work can be paid or unpaid. So if you're getting lots of clinical experience as your main full-time job, then you're covering your clinical base. Where it gets a little bit murkier is with non-clinical volunteering. And um, you guys have heard me say this before. I often try to just avoid the word volunteer because so many people get confused about whether we're talking about clinical or community service. So clinical could be paid or unpaid. And that is something that almost every med school is going to want to see. I mean, have I ever in my 20 years of helping people go to med school, seen someone get into med school with hardly in a clinical? Yeah, every once in a while it happens. But mostly, and especially as the med pre-med application or the med school application process keeps evolving more and more away from stats and, and more into competencies and adult maturity. Um, they really want to see clinical because they want to know you know what you're getting into in terms of what patient care looks and feels like in America, right? In a, in a country where doctors have sometimes tenuous relationships with the public, um, in a country where insurance is really weird, uh, that's, that's the main thing. That's the main reason you're doing shadowing in clinical. It's to experience it for yourself and confirm that this is still the career for you. And then those things shine through in your application when you've done them. Uh, community service, or maybe could also be called non-clinical volunteering, is kind of a separate matter. You're going to find that some med schools, especially certain mission-driven med schools, might care about it a lot. And some schools might just mention it as one of many possible activities. So I always think it's great to dabble in a lot of things. If there's something that personally speaks to you, if there's some part of the population that you've just always had a soft spot for, and there's a way you can help them, then I think it's great to do that. You know, I mean, in college, um, I was in one of those like co-ed sort of fraternity slash honoraries. And our joke was like, we partied every Friday night and then we got up together Saturday morning and did Habitat for Humanity. Like that was just a thing we liked doing, right? Um, and, you know, I do care a lot about people not being houseless, right? So it fit in with what interested me. Um, it was also fun to do it with friends, right? Like, I didn't feel any embarrassment about that. I think it's okay to enjoy community service. It doesn't have to be like a martyr kind of thing. But if you're really, really busy, 
personally, I think, because some schools care about community service and some schools care less, that's probably an easier thing to let drop, right? Like, um, I, David, David's an application academy too, so I know him a little and I know his big thing this spring is he needs to retake the MCAT. So if you're working full time and you've got MCAT, you just may not have time to do much volunteering. And that's in my mind, in your particular situation, because I know more than is just in this question, I would say that's probably an okay priority. The flip side is, I don't know what med schools you're applying to. Maybe you need to go look at their admissions requirements pages because if a lot of them talk about the importance of proving that you have compassion and that you care about the community and that you care about disadvantaged populations, then you do need to either rethink, is this the right school list for me or am I missing an activity? Yeah, and, and we understand that some of the community volunteer efforts that, that you participate in are one-time events, right? It's two hours here or four hours here and they happen you know, any number of times as you're going through your undergraduate or graduate education experience in the years. So those numbers add up over time. And it also shows that when you do have free time or there is something that you wanna be involved in that you lend some of your really valuable hours to this event or initiative and, and become a resource for it. And so it's okay if it's only a couple of hours a month when you can, um, you know, doing what you can we'll look at it in the context of the full record. But I agree, look at the mission, look at, at what they're saying, if it's published and explicitly stated, go based off of that, right? They are telling you what they are looking for and what is important to them or their core values that they want to foster on their campus, in their cohorts, take it at face value. But if you're prioritizing things, we understand that some community volunteer things are, you know, only a couple hours here and there, and that's okay. All right, maybe one, one or two more. Yeah. yeah. All right, Melissa, okay. One of my prereq courses, Sociology One, which is not a prereq course. Hmm. Um, Sometimes it, it is now. Is it? Some schools. Behavioral science? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess, okay, under, under the heading of behavioral science, okay, is graded as pass rather than a letter grade. Will medical schools be concerned about that? Should I retake the course? Um, I think this one is dependent on timing is gonna be kind of the, the first thing to point to. Was it taken during the active pandemic years where there are provisions in place from the med schools that have been published to say during this time period, we will consider Obviously, it's still not ideal, but we understand that some schools forced you. It was mandatory to take pass-fail. Sometimes you could choose from it. Um, and kind of this allotted period of time. Most times outside of that, I would say most schools would much rather or require seeing a letter grade. Anybody else want to yeah. chime in? Yeah, I think you're just going to have to reach out to some of your schools, yeah. Melissa. Yeah. You, know, you don't necessarily have to reach out to all 30, right, or however many you're applying to, but maybe your state school, a couple of the schools that are on your sort of top dream list, and just see what kind of responses you get. Because again, not every school is even going to require sociology. Some do, some don't. Mm -hmm. um, but typically, if it's required, they want a letter grade. What um, what Hofstra did during that time was for any pre-med student who needed an actual grade, 
um, the professor was willing to write a letter that stated what the grade was. So you might be able to reach out to the school um, and see if that can be arranged or through the registrar's office where they actually on official letterhead indicate what the grade would have been. Um, wow. So that's an option. Interesting. Yeah, I was saying reach out to med schools, but yeah, maybe also your mm -hmm. undergraduate. Your undergrad. Good yeah. tip. Thanks, Hofstra. Yeah, that was very was, nice of them to do that. For yeah, their it was. It was such. It was such a stressful time for students that I was. We were all. We all advisors were very uh, <laughs> yeah. happy with that. Mm -hmm. um, was that just during the time of COVID, or could people do that outside of time? Mm, no, it was just during that time. It was okay. like special provisions and. But potentially you could still reach out to the registrar and say, look, I need this grade for um, medical school. Is this something that you could consider? And then it probably has to go through some kind of approval. But yeah. they, uh, I find that that registrar's staff is very understanding. Yeah. <laughs> they might have to get approval off it from a dean or something, but yeah. they might be able to do that. Well, and it's worth asking. Yeah. And again, I mean, check the requirements. If it's under just the guise of behavioral health, Maybe you got a pass for sociology, but you took another humanities course or, or um, psychology course or something like that that would qualify that you got a grade for earlier on in your academic journey. So, you know, go go and look up some of this information. It takes time, but the research will be helpful in kind of answering that question for you. And, and this information will be readily available to help you kind of navigate this. Good luck. All right. Do we want to do one more? Who's the lucky winner of the last question? You say, should we do Ann C's question? It's about downward trends. Okay. Let's tackle that. Sure. Okay. And how do schools view students in the reverse position, 4.0 undergraduate GPA, but bombed the first year of their postback? Also, what would you recommend to get stats back to a place where they should be? Okay, well, I know all of us are well versed and can probably say a lot about this topic. Does anybody want to go first or you want me to go first and then build from there? Yeah, why don't you talk about it because you were interviewing people this time last year who are Med Ones now. So what did you do when you saw this on applications? Sure, so I, I would kind of look at a at a couple of additional pieces of information. Again, I'm I'm trying to give everybody the benefit of the doubt and and look for whatever information could kind of inform me on on the student at present. Um, what I would wonder is the courses that you took in post back, how many of them at once, where you took them, were you working at that same time or was there any other life situation kind of going on um, to kind of give me a bit of context beyond just the letter grade you received? Obviously, it's not ideal, right? Um, we want to see kind of growth and, and a trend towards it's, it's It's easier at face value to kind of see like, okay, well, this academic profile leads me to believe that, you know, there's been success here. They seem like they understand their own learning style and study habits and things. So if we put them into academic coursework, we don't have anything that we can point to 
that would tell us that that they would be at a you know very challenged beyond beyond what we understand. So having a downward trend, if there's no information that I can kind of gather about why that may be, it, it seems to be at odds with each other and it may cause me to hesitate a little bit. Is it the only thing I'm gonna look at? No. Um, but I would need more information before making a decision because this is kind of a misstep. As far as recommendation to get stats in place where they should be, again, how many credit hours you have. Sometimes once you have a certain number of credit hours, it's hard to make any real impact or movement um, on that upward trend, but at least in taking additional classes, I'm able to see that whatever was going on during this period of time isn't going on now. You're able to, you know, get a competitive MCAT score. You know, you're still involved in clinical and experience from time to time. So, so I have something to kind of say, okay, this is past. This is the current student that I'd be getting and kind of go from there. That's long-winded, but also the short way to answer that um, in generalities. Anybody else? feel like jumping in. Well, I just want to quickly add that they also, it, they mentioned the first year of their post-bac, which implies there's more coming. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you still have an opportunity to kind of pull that trend up, pull that GPA trend up. Um, so um, I think Courtney, you gave a lot of detail of how that can be viewed, but remember you also, if you're still in this program, you still have another, you know, you still have time to work mm -hmm. on bringing that back up. Yeah, life happens, right? And, and we do, want to see that sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes if we see a blip in a record, but then, you know, either there was a reason for it or we can, we have more recent information. We understand that there are circumstances that can definitely affect your academics um, at any point along your academic journey, right? Yeah. But we also don't want to put somebody in school that's visibly struggling and we have that information ahead of time and then we throw them into a very academically rigorous and very stressful um, academic setting and then have them have to drop out or struggle that that doesn't help anybody right it, it doesn't help the pre-med and med student, it doesn't help the institution. Um, so that's why they're kind of looking for that kind of stuff. It, it's not as a way to gatekeep. It, it also is in place um, to make sure that, you know, it's not just kind of a, a churn and burn where we don't care, you can come and fail out and no problem to us. See you with your debt and your biology degree. You know, it's, um, there are things in place to kind of help make sure that minimum requirements that would indicate success um, are there so we know you have the shot at, at kind of moving forward and being able to take that on. So move forward, move past it, address it, mm -hmm. um, but we understand life. So thank you for joining us. I know we're kind of over time 
All of us love doing this portion. Join Application Academy, though, if you're doing an application this year. Just having the context of being able to chat it out with your peers, with an advisor, whenever you're working on something to get some context is super helpful. It really, really is because this is kind of a small blip in the whole journey, but it's a very stressful one and you've already done all of this work to prepare, but you need to put it forward in a way that the schools will be able to see you know, all of the things that you've done, kind of give yourself the best opportunity to have them see that, recognize that, understand that. And, and sometimes there's some strategy or some things that you can do to kind of finesse it um, while still being completely honest, just, you know, using strategy that we're all familiar with. So we are here to help you, whether in these live sessions or on podcasts or workshops or application academy or one-on-one -on -one or map chat <laughs> or anything else that we do. So thanks for joining us. We will yeah. see you all in next week or yeah. some other time. Yeah. Okay. Bye. 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 This is Dr. Gray again, closing out. I hope you learned something from our session today. If you haven't yet checked out Mapped, I invite you to try it for free for two weeks by going to mapped.com slash podcast. Track and navigate your journey to medical school using the only tool like it for pre-meds. We'll see you next week here on Ask the Dean.